0: Greetings! How are you doing? Gosh, December already. I can't even believe that we are this close to the holiday season, maybe already in the holiday season, depending on what you celebrate. So, happiest of holidays. I have a guest today, Amy Mednick, and we're going to talk about humanizing the remote work experience. So, I'm, I'm coming at this very topical topic from a couple of different angles these days and this one is going to be really about what we might be missing out on with this remote experience and how can we make it better i think even if you have returned to the office there it's highly likely that you are dealing with at least a hybrid workforce if not some outright remote workers and maybe you yourself are still remote and this is this is uncharted waters for corporations, for leaders, and for employees. And so we really want to break this down a little bit today. And so first of all, uh, I want to thank Amy for being a guest on the podcast today. Thank you so much, Amy. Thank you for having me. Well, why
1: don't you start by telling the folks about you, tell them about your story. Sure. I'd love to. I'm a psychiatrist by training. Uh, I'm a medical doctor and I work in New York City. When the pandemic hit, just like everyone else everything shifted completely online for me and I'm lucky enough to be in a in a profession where that was very doable and I was able to keep seeing my patients and keep supporting them online and you know kind of early in the pandemic uh, my colleague Diane Leonard she had approached me about writing a book about uh, the remote experience and it was it was mid 2020 so we were still navigating we didn't really have any answers at all <laughs> And so we started writing this book and it was really, you know, it was a work, a live work in progress because we were giving advice on how to humanize the remote experience as we figured it out. And what I was seeing, you know, I was living my own life on the computer kind of doing running this whole practice and and seeing what it was like to to see patients and do these things remotely. And then at the same time, I have a lot of a lot of patients who are working professionals, working parents, all these kind of big slice of of the population. so I was also getting to see how they were adjusting and the problems that people were having really across the board with some certain aspects of this. obviously some people thriving, but even the thrivers, you know, still, Things were different. Things were odd, obviously. <laughs> so we we really dug in, and over the course of a year, we we researched this topic as we lived it, came up with some explanations for why things were happening and some, uh, some some tips on how to counteract it, as even as we were trying to heed our own advice and and kind of make things work. So that's how that's how the book came about. And and like you said, I, even though we're we're back. In person there's there's still a big mix, so I agree a lot of these things still apply and, and probably will indefinitely. I think that's interesting, Amy, that you were able to
0: look at it from the perspective of you as a practitioner in in your particular field of psychiatry and how this was affecting your patients. You were also seeing parallelly how it was affecting you because you were working remotely and you were researching the larger population. So you really were in a unique from a unique vantage point, I think, to discuss this topic.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think so. It was very interesting.
0: <laughs> very, mm-hmm. Yeah, we all have our, I don't know if we want to call them, you know, remote horror stories or COVID horror stories. I've certainly had my share of them, mm-hmm. even though I was working remotely and have been since, what, 2012, I guess. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you one thing that was different for me, Amy, because my my day-to-day didn't really change. But before... I would have people come on because I work kind of exclusively through Zoom. And they'd be like, I don't know how Zoom works. I've never been on that. Yeah, I don't hear that anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In fact, when I have a client who's like, I don't know how to get the video on or the audio, I'm like, I look at them like, no, you do too. Yes, you do. <laughs> What's Where have you been? Under a rock for the last couple of years? All right. So we've talked a lot about, you know, in the media, and I'm sure we've talked in our our circles about kind of Zoom fatigue, whatever we've Mm -hmm. chosen to call it. Why has remote work contributed to a different kind of fatigue? Why does this Zoom fatigue need its own name Mm -hmm. uh, than what we've experienced
1: in the normal work fatigue in the past? Right, right. Well, the way I like to think about Zoom problems like this, Zoom problems in general, is through a lens of kind of thinking about some of our basic needs and what really like honing in on what, what are we missing? What are we missing out on with remote interactions? And I think a lot of the problems that we have can be understood this way. It starts from the the fact that we are social creatures by nature. That's how we were designed. That's how we survive, right? Is by being around other people and, and being helped by other people. And you know, we talk about needs like we're used to needs like hunger, right? And when we're hungry, our bodies tell us and we get food. And, you know, when we're thirsty, same thing. But when it comes to some of these other social needs, it's not always as obvious. So we go through a few different social needs in the book, but the one that that most relates to zoom fatigue i think is is we have this need for understanding what i mean by that is is this humans are complex the outside world is complex what we have to do in a in a in a day is so much work for the brain that if we had to kind of figure it out anew every time every interaction every day we wouldn't have enough energy to get through an hour we would have to go back to sleep <laughs> So because of that, because it is all so much work cognitively, the brain has developed all kinds of shortcuts Mm -hmm. to help us understand things, to help us kind of lump things together and group things together and and have expectations on what what we're going to get from people and what we're going to get from the world. So we have all these wonderful shortcuts and they were not built for the Zoom world whatsoever. So when we when we translate our our regular 3d experience into the 2d world a lot of the the cues and the signals that we need that we rely on for these shortcuts are either not there just completely mm-hmm. missing or even worse they're they're wrong they're distorted they're we're kind of getting the wrong information i can give examples of that so both of those the missing signals and the distorting distorted signals cause a lot of problems so we're spending the day on zoom our brains are doing a lot more work because there's just like a lot of blanks to fill in it's just not the way that they're designed to understand other people they're doing more work they're getting less information because we just have this flat screen right and we don't have body language and we don't have physical interactions so they're going this whole day building a picture and it's a ton of work it's it's just it's just more work than the brain is used to doing in a day. And it's not, you know, it's not obvious because you think you're just having regular conversations and you don't, you don't really know on a conscious level how much, how much extra you have to do. I'll give an example of that and just of, of the distorted signals. A big one is, is sound and sound delays, you know, from a, and this is an example of a shortcut. So from a lifetime of talking to people, your brain has learned. That when you ask a question and there's a long pause, it means something. It, it means a very specific thing, mm-hmm. and and you know it doesn't always mean the same thing on Zoom because there may be a sound delay or there may be a technology issue or they may be muted or or whatever. But it doesn't matter <laughs> that that you know the reason. Your brain is still has you know a lifetime of of reading a certain way into pauses, and there was a great study that that looked into this a little bit more deeply and scientifically. And and they they looked at people on, on video conferences to see what kind of effect the sound delays had. And they found that if there was a sound delay of less than 1.2 seconds, no problem. Things go on. If the sound delay was longer than 1.2 seconds, people tended to judge the speaker mm. as being less attentive, less extroverted, less conscientious. People tended to you know, on when they were questioned later to attribute the delay to the speaker's character, not to the technology. Yeah. And that's just, that's just what our brains do. Well, I
0: imagine it's not always just the sound delay, but sometimes you know, there's a glitch in the system and we don't hear the question properly or we don't hear the prompt Mm -hmm. properly and we respond based on what we think we heard Mm -hmm. or we don't respond because we didn't hear, we didn't realize there was a question being asked. And that creates all kinds of thoughts too.
1: Mm Yeah. It's just a snowball.
0: Yes. (laughs) Interesting. And we, and our, our primitive brain, which is wired to make like meaning and be efficient like they have to put it 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 wants to go into a like a cubicle in our brain you know labeled whatever Mm -hmm. (laughs) we it's it's short-circuiting that that primitive brain that's kept us alive since the beginning of time
1: yeah exactly the the brain always takes the path of least resistance the easiest the easiest explanation you know
0: yeah and it's often wrong (laughs) interesting so so that primitive brain that's been trying to keep us alive since the mastodons were chasing after (laughs) us and we were in the cave is very confused right now i'm sure
1: yeah it is
0: (laughs) (laughs) interesting interesting yeah so are there any other kind of fatigues that you're seeing Uh, any differences
1: in that fatigue with zoom you know i think it's it kind of adds up because because of what i described because of because of all the work you know what ends up happening is actually i think we actually don't have the best understanding of fatigue and we don't totally realize that mental fatigue affects our physical strength when your brain is tired your body's going to feel it too we kind of give our brain too much credit and kind of think that we can keep going whereas with our bodies you know your legs give out and you're done with your you're done with your run Another another great study looked at this and they had people, they had two groups of people. This is a UK study about 10 years ago. And they had one group doing an emotionally neutral task. I don't know what it was for an hour and a half. And the other group watched like a really heavy, emotionally heavy movie for an hour and a half. And then they both had to do a cognitively difficult task. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I take that back. They both had to get on on stationary bicycles, ah, uh, yeah, yeah, that makes more sense, <laughs> so they put both groups on bicycles, and the group that had used their brains more and used this cognitively difficult task burnt out faster they got they got to the they were supposed to ride to the point of exhaustion, and they got exhausted faster across the board, so you know we have this shared gas tank for energy, it's mm. all coming from the same place, and when you burn it all up, it's just gone, and we don't. We realize that we drink more coffee, you know. We just keep going. the The mental is just as just as severe fatigue as the physical. I think that's a a main thing about Zoom fatigue because we don't we think because it's because it's mental. I think we have a little bit more of a tendency to push and to keep going, and we shouldn't be. <laughs> when your body's telling you you're done, you know it's time to to stop or take a break. And that's such a challenge because if you're working
0: from home and you're not the boss, you may mm-hmm. not have any control. Mm-hmm. I had a someone on social media that I know well posted one day that she had had seven hours of Zoom meetings that day. Mm-hmm. She's an introvert, so she was beyond wiped of. out. And, and there's this sense that these meetings are meaningless, that th- most of them don't need to happen. And it's this sense of keeping... It's almost like we're keeping an eye on you by having all these meetings because we don't trust you to do Mm -hmm. your job if we can't see you. So we're going to keep you on Zoom all day long. And then when does the work get done? Because if you're in seven hours of meetings in one day, that just means that you probably just gave yourself, you didn't give it, but someone gave Mm -hmm. you a whole bunch of extra work through those meetings. And when are you going to get them done if all you ever do is uh, sit in Zoom meetings?
1: Right, totally. It's like a lack of adaptation because you don't your your employees aren't in the office so you can't watch them so it's kind of like people are just watching them on zoom all day and and kind of not thinking about what is the purpose of this what is the mm-hmm. purpose of this meeting and because we can we do it you know because we can go back to back to back to back we just we all kind of have been doing that and it's not it's not the healthy way to do it
0: no, I've heard from many people that they, when they can, they put their, they mute it and put their, you know, mute their video as well. And they clean their house or they wash their yeah. dishes or they're really not paying attention at all. So they're not getting any benefit from the meeting. They just feel like they have to be there.
1: Mhm. Yeah, exactly. So
0: what are these warning signs? If If we've got folks that are not getting their basic needs met that that they're dealing with this sort of uncharted water of life on zoom how what do they need to be looking for and you know what are the warning signs and what do they do about them
1: yeah so again like i said before the warning warning signs are uh, the body's way of telling you that you need something that you haven't met a need and we know the obvious ones when we're hungry we eat when we're thirsty we drink when we're tired hopefully we sleep eventually when you're not sure what the problem is it's hard to fix it and we could see that in toddlers right and and people who get <laughs> hangry they're not realizing that you know that's that's what they need next is to eat when it comes to social needs it can be a little more subtle and and that's why i think it's really important to to pin these down because you may not know what's missing so the warning signs really help us to say what what could be my problem here so i mentioned for for the, the need to understand other people, that warning sign is finding yourself fatigued, finding yourself kind of getting quickly, cognitively overloaded, forgetting things, kind of all those, you know, over overusing your brain. The other two needs that we get into detail in the book are, the first one is on a pretty basic level, you have the need for safety. It's kind of the first need that your body's always aware of, and that need usually... For most people, that requires the presence of other people. So you need to have other people around in order to feel safe and comfortable mm-hmm. in your environment. You know, that comes from, from day one, right? If babies are, are alone, they're not, they can't survive. So we have that kind of wa- hardwired in from the very beginning of, of our lives. So for some people, they're, they're fine. But for a lot of people, when you're on Zoom all day long, does your brain really think does it know people are around or does it feel you know if you don't actually interact with anyone physically over the whole course of a day there's kind of a question of does your brain really know that you are you are around other Mm. people or does it feel alone and the warning sign for that for that need not being met and for any time that your your safety is not being met your brain's going to be hyper vigilant your fight or flight you know, you may not have a fight or flight response, but it's gonna be kind of like ready to launch mm-hmm. at any minute. So you're kind of your your nervous system is gonna be kind of looking for the next threat, scanning on edge. And if that's the case, you're not it's not using any resources to focus on higher level stuff, like you know, reading or attending to meetings mm-hmm. or or any of these things that it doesn't care so much about when it thinks there's a, a threat around. So in this case, if you're struggling to pay attention, if it's really hard to hold your focus on a task throughout the day, this this could be the warning sign that that particular social need is not met. And then the the third, so we have need for safety and comfort, need for understanding. And then the third one, which is a little bit more clear to see, is the need for belonging. Mm -hmm. So humans also require a sense of belonging to some kind of group or tribe or whatever you want to call it. And when we don't feel that sense that we belong to some people, we can feel unsettled or discontent, or sometimes it can even be kind of uh, painful to feel excluded. And in virtual interactions, it's a lot easier to feel unheard or unseen. Obviously, I mean, that's a, a we're just on a single camera, so it can be pretty pretty easy to not be seen. Mm-hmm. Um, we're also lacking sort of the, the bonding chemicals that come out from just being around people all day, the oxytocin and the endorphins and dopamine. They're just going to flow a little bit differently when we're all in our own houses. Empathy can be harder. Psychological safety can be harder. It's A lot of it's harder. And so, you know, in this case, the warning sign that this need isn't being met is just feeling kind of feelings of exclusion or not being seen or or rejected that can sometimes even lead to quicker to the to burnout or the feelings of burnout you know a quick example of of why that could happen more more easily on zoom let's say your sound's not working or it's being funny one day so you tell everyone hey i'm not going to i'm going to listen but my my mic is bad so don't ask me any questions now you know why no one's talking to you on the Zoom call because you you just talked, you told them in the chat or whatever. Mm-hmm. But your brain isn't really, doesn't really know the rules of Zoom. <laughs> so it doesn't know why no one's looking at you and no one's talking to you. So it could very well perceive this as an exclusion or a rejection. And oh. it doesn't matter that you know the reason because your brain perceives your brain is very sensitive to social rejection. We could see why that would be, you know, important survival-wise. So it it can actually feel excluded or rejected even though you know consciously you know the reason. And so if you're feeling that way frequently, it's it's time to look at whether your need for belonging is being met and if there's something that you kind of need to adjust about that and then you know as far as what to do about all these problems <laughs> so there's a lot and there's in the book we break down a whole lot the whole second part of the book is many strategies on what to do about all of this and again broken down according to where the particular issue lies and where what what you're missing out on but i can just give some basics to think about as far as the extra work of all this zoom stuff goes and the zoom fatigue and cognitive overload one thing you can do is Make sure to decrease everything that is adding even more work. There are things that we can cut out. Huge example. I think people are catching on to this less so at the beginning of our our Zoom lives, but the self view, it's best to turn it off. It's best not to have a picture of yourself all day long in front of you. When you were working in the office, you didn't have a mirror propped up in front of you on the conference table, right? You didn't. You were not you just weren't didn't have your own reflection like staring at you all the time. Our brains are drawn to our own reflection of course. That's just natural. So it's it's going to distract you. It's going to draw your eyes to it. But it has been shown to be even more work to kind of have to be self-monitoring and aware of yourself. You easy thing, just turn it off. You know, check yourself, make sure you like, you know, make sure you look okay, you've nothing in your teeth, your your setup is good and then turn it off. Same with like chat there's a there's a place for chat but side chats and other windows and having your cell phone out and doing a million things at once just because you can when you're on zoom doesn't mean that you should because you're already you know the zoom call itself is already more work so don't don't give yourself even more
0: Mm -hmm. that's interesting about the self view i had never thought about that but it does make sense that it would be distracting and and for some people who are not great with their body image, that could Mm -hmm. bring up a lot of things. All right. So some of our listeners, maybe many of them are in leadership roles and they're the ones who are scheduling all of these Zoom meetings. What can they do to help humanize the experience for their employees?
1: Yeah, good question. So obviously the first, the easiest thing to do is is not the easiest thing, but the first thing they can do is model that that good self-care and, and do the right things for themselves so that their employees can follow suit, okay, taking care of themselves, setting good boundaries, things like that. There are things leaders can do to make Zoom less exhausting. They're the ones who are setting up the meetings. So definitely, like we said before, considering really considering the medium don't just not just doing anything by default what is the best medium for this conversation sometimes zoom is great and it, it is the right medium other times an email would do just fine mm-hmm. and even sometimes going back to audio is can be effective it feels a little funny now right we're so used to seeing each other's faces when we talk but phone calls and you know audio only is a is less work for the brain than video We get more information on video, but as we've been discussing, more information is not always better. And when you only have to focus on the intonation and the breath and what someone is is saying, that can be a lot less work. So sometimes, you know, maybe a phone call is better. And then because, because of all this work, it's important leaders don't add any more ambiguity. We're already, there's already a lot. So it's a it's now is the time to really make things very clear and explicit as far as expectations and goals, because there's already, you know, a lot that that our brains are trying to catch up on and work out. So that's that's something that can be really helpful. I think also that that need for belonging is is somewhere that leaders can have the most impact. We are not. In person, when we are not in person, those social chemicals I, I mentioned, those those brain chemicals are are circulating a little bit less well. Oxytocin is a is a brain chemical that helps us to to bond and to trust each other. And when we're not in the same room, when we're not making actual real eye contact, there's just going to be less of that. And it's something to keep in mind that people are not going to naturally feel as bonded and you know, to make an extra effort to give people opportunities for that. I think we, some leaders try to make the Zoom meetings quick and efficient, which is great. We kind of maybe skip the social things or the small talk because, you know, want to get people in, respect their time and all of that. But it's still important to to keep some of that to keep some of the small social this the small the small talk the checking in the five mm-hmm. minutes that we would have had before the meeting started there's still there's a there's a reason we were doing that and it's really important so anyways, we can keep that in the conversation is really important and along the same lines psychological safety is really important aspect of teamwork psychological safety is like the the feeling that you can sort of trust the group that you're with, that they will give you the benefit of the doubt, that you can take a risk and nobody's going to punish you. Mm-hmm. They're going to support you in that. There was a really big study by Google showing that psychological safety is the hallmark of successful teams. They looked at all kinds of parameters. Was it intelligence? Was it communication? The only thing that bore out along among all teams was the ones with the most psychological safety were the most successful teams. And the specific factors that they narrowed that down to in, in their research, and this has been shown in other research, was that people took equal turns mm-hmm. to talk and that people could understand each other's emotions or kind of, you know, read the room. And so those are both, in in some ways, those are harder on Zoom, but also They're a little bit more maybe in the, in the leader's control, but it might take some more tone setting or, or kind of different structuring than Mm -hmm. the same team might require in person. If people are not speaking up, does it need to be, you know, more deliberate? Do we need, we, we do have these functions on zoom, you know, do we need to use them a little bit more, the hand raising and the, you know, the, 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 like muting or unmuting and things like that. So Mm -hmm. just keeping that in mind for people to make sure that they're feeling psychologically safe in all of their meetings, that can go a really long way to enhance that, that feeling of belonging and trust among the group
0: absolutely because you can't have the the group is not going to move forward unless people feel free to disagree mm-hmm. to you know for lack of a better word argue a point you know converse about a p- possibilities options and that kind of thing i think a real simple thing that a boss can do that serves two purposes is when they invite people to meetings you know it take a moment to explain susie's being you know susie's going to be in the meeting because of this john you're you get the time off yeah you right kind of thing mm-hmm. and i think it serves two purposes because i think what i'm hearing from clients is as opposed to there's a meeting in the conference room and i can see it so i'm going to stick my head and find out you know am i supposed to be in this meeting i wasn't invited they're not going to find out most of the time until after the fact that there was a meeting that they were excluded from on Zoom, and they make up a story about that mm-hmm. and what that means. And I think from the boss's perspective, you know, if he can't come up with a good reason why Susie should be in the meeting, let's let Susie not be in the meeting, right? He, he can say, oh, okay, I can exclude Susie, too. The only people I really need in this meeting are Bob and John, and I think that, you know, having that rationale for people, oh, I don't need to be in this meeting, you know, and here's why I understand it. It makes sense to my brain. I've got a free hour to get something mm-hmm. else done. I think that would go miles. And then the boss is not just automatically including everybody for a mm-hmm. no good reason.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and I think you make two really important points there. One is the lack of the conference room, right? The, the lack of that that information that walking by oh you know passing someone in the hall oh you know you're we're going to have this meeting but here's why you don't need to come these teeny little interactions that gave a lot of context in the workplace that we don't have like you said there can there can be some some costs to not being able to communicate in that way and so being deliberate is so so important on zoom like you said being you know telling each person where you need them and why that's the kind of thing that can can decrease ambiguity and make all of this hard stuff a little bit less hard (laughs) thank goodness well amy let's bring all of this
0: together so what are your sort of top you know couple two three takeaways that you want to leave the audience with around this topic
1: one important thing is that to always keep in mind is that our brains are designed in a very specific way to keep us safe in a certain environment where we evolved. And in a lot of ways, the environment we lived in now could not be more different. <laughs> that's right. Than that one. And that's that's an issue all the time. But I think, you know, I think, you know, even before this Zoom world, that was an issue because we're not on the savannah and we're not, you know, escape trying to escape danger at every second. But even more so now on this in this 2D world that we're that we're moving through. And so all those wonderful safety mechanisms that we have to protect us, they just don't, they don't always operate the best mm-hmm. in this modern world. And they they cause us a lot of problems. And if we realize that it can it can help us to get to the root of those problems and make them stop working against us. And then along similar lines, just kind of, we need to appreciate that the brain, the nervous system, the body—all this stuff—is so incredibly, unthinkably complex. We kind of, I think, as humans, tend to sort of feel like we know, like, oh, I know what's going on in in my head, because because you can think and make decisions. You kind of, kind of assume you know everything that's going on in your own head and your own body. When in when in reality, we have only access to a really small sliver of of all these you know, processes that are happening in your brain, consciously and subconsciously and 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 all of that. So I think it's important to acknowledge that there's just a lot going on that you're not aware of and that could could be affecting you and could really surprise you to find out that it's affecting you, that it's having a certain impact. So as a result, just be patient with yourself and give yourself the benefit of the doubt and you know, explore these things when you're ready. I'll give them a, a little bit more of a a concrete takeaway and sort of one of my biggest personal takeaways from all the research that I did it's a very simple one but it it made a difference to me and that was take a break there's research that's shown that our brains work the best if they get 15 to 30 minutes of rest for every 90 to 120 minutes of work and that came Ooh, from Say that again give that give that ratio again so we need 15 to 30 minutes of rest for every 90 to 120 minutes of work and that came from research on athletes and performance but then it it was found to apply really to everyone and it really reflects the way some of our greatest thinkers and inventors kind of you know carried carried on in their lives it's very difficult it's very counterintuitive we we don't want to stop working to, mm-hmm. to work to work better why would i stop? i could just finish and then i'll take a break later. but it it really doesn't work like that. it really you work so much better if you if you give your brain a break. it's essential. and actually if you can take a break in nature or even looking at a natural scene, it's it's been studied and shown to kind of calm your nervous system even more. so that's a big one and that's something that you know, <laughs> me and my co as we're writing, we were, you know, I, I found myself like writing about that. And it was like, you know, hour two of writing about that. And I said to myself, why, <laughs> why am I having so much trouble? Why can't I, why can't I just finish this paragraph? Oh, <laughs>
0: so physician heal thyself, Amy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It was kind of crazy to, to realize that as I was writing it, it's, it's very true. It's very hard but it's a good one to try to put into practice. I'll tell you a a funny
0: quick story that I found ironic and, and my coworkers did once I pointed it out, but for some reason I was the only person who picked up on it. My entire when I was in higher education, my entire student affairs team was ordered to go to this conference on transformational learning. And we were about it was in St. Louis. It was about three and a half hours and we had to room together and all the things. And There was no option. All the directors had to go. and yet to learn about transformational learning they shut they had way too many people register it was very Mm -hmm. popular topic they had the chairs so close together that literally you had to pick where your shoulder's going to be up or where you're going to (laughs) be back and there was no activities there was nothing but a talking head and i'm like how are you supposed to tell us about transformational learning and we don't get to experience a trans have a transformational experience in learning about transformational mm-hmm. experiences. And I just found that completely ironic. Like you've got to model that mm-hmm. that behavior. So I am definitely going to take this this 15 to 30 minutes for every 90 to 120 to heart because I realize I have been doing that, but feeling guilty. For Mm -hmm. doing it like I just need to get up and walk around. A lot of times it's around taking my dogs out of the backyard. And sometimes I just stand there on my screen porch and look at my beautiful backyard and the trees and listen to the birds. And little did I know that I was doing exactly what I should be doing. I was feeling guilty. So I I receive that now. (laughs) Great. And I like also that your analogy for back in the day was the Savannah. And I assume there was a lion chasing you. And for me, it's always been the mastodon trying to get me in the cave. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) 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 Different settings, same concept. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, how can listeners find you, Amy? And I don't know that we've ever mentioned the title of your book. So please give it a plug.
1: Yes. So the book is called Humanizing the Remote Experience. Through Leadership and Coaching, Strategies for Better Virtual Connections. And it's available on Amazon and all the major booksellers. It was published by Rutledge and my co-author is Diane Leonard. You can find out more about the book at htre-book.com. And that links also to my own personal slash business website, which is dramymednick.com. So you can find out more there as well. And I'm on Instagram, amy amymednickmd. LinkedIn, Amy Metnick.
0: Excellent. Well, you guys check her out. I think this book sounds like it would be particularly useful for managers, HR people, but really anyone, I think, would benefit from kind of understanding what's going on here. Because I think once you understand the cause of the fatigue, you can really begin to take steps to, to fix it. So I hope you guys have gotten something valuable out of this today. I certainly have gotten some, some good takeaways. And thank you again, Amy, for being on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Really appreciate it. You are most welcome. It was my pleasure. And you guys take care, and I will see you next week. You've been listening to the Exclusive Career Coach with Lisa Edwards, CEO of Exclusive Career Coaching. It would be great if you would rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. Also, I want to be your career coach, so be sure to ask questions about your career management challenges and job search situation. Until next time.